The disciple says to Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. And Jesus says, do you see these great stone buildings that surround us? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. It's all coming down. Happy 25th anniversary, Trinity. <laughs> we are celebrating this weekend, despite what you may hear in these lectionary readings assigned for this day by the higher-ups in a church office somewhere in New York or wherever. We're celebrating the fact that 25 years ago tomorrow, November 19th, 1993, Trinity Episcopal Church here in the city of Portland since 1851 became Trinity Episcopal Cathedral, which was a a kind of ecclesiastical promotion, if you like, maybe a, maybe a punishment for our sins, depending on your perspective. Being a, being a cathedral is a mantle that we tend to wear pretty lightly around here, but it's worth taking a moment, I think, as we are this weekend, to reflect a little bit on what that word cathedral, what that thing means for us here in Portland. The technical definition of a cathedral, as the church nerds among you know well, is that it's simply the place where a bishop has his seat, and that's it right around the corner here. That's Bishop Hanley's chair, his, his cathedra, that's the Latin term for it. That's the thing that makes us a cathedral, the cathedral for the Episcopal Diocese of Oregon, that unique relationship that we have here with our bishop. But historically, cathedrals have been so much more than simply a place where a bishop hangs his hat. Cathedrals were and are places of pilgrimage. They're places of hospitality and service, not just for Episcopalians or for Anglicans, but for people of many faiths and people of no faith at all. Cathedrals have historically belonged not just to the worshiping communities that call them home, they've belonged to their cities and to their regions. Cathedrals are civic space as much as they are religious sanctuary. So here at Trinity, I like to say sometimes, you know, we belong to the city of Portland. We belong to the citizens of the state of Oregon. We belong to the entire Pacific Northwest region because centuries before there was an English stone building on this location, anthropologists and archaeologists tell me, this very site, this hill, was a gathering place for members of many tribes and languages and peoples and nations. These were the Multnomah and the Clackamas and the Tualatin Kalapuya and the Kathlamet and the Molala and the various Chinook bands that lived along the Columbia River. This is a place that has served for centuries as sacred space, where people of different ethnicities and languages meet and celebrate that which is most important, the stuff that binds them together, despite their differences. So for us, I would, I would suggest to you, cathedral means embracing that history, that longer history as a gathering place, a meeting place, a place where a, a certain kind, a certain quality of conversation can happen about who we are as a people. And there has never been a more important time in our nation's history for cathedrals like this one to be gathering places for conversations that matter. As Marianne Borg said this morning in the forum, the stakes have never felt higher for that work. 25 years ago, we answered the call to really step into that vocation, to be a cathedral in the 21st century. And 25 years down the road into that project, I think we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of what a cathedral can be in a town and a region like this one.
So we're giving thanks this morning. We're giving thanks for those who said yes 25 years ago to that call to embrace this mission. We're giving thanks for all that God has done and is doing in this community. And there is no weirder set of readings in which to do that thing than these heavy apocalyptic texts about the end of the world, the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and thick gloom, a day of anguish, as the prophet Daniel talks about it, when nation will rise against nation and there are earthquakes and famines and disaster and fire, the very things that Jesus calls the beginnings of the birth pangs. Our texts this morning paint us these ancient pictures of what the end of the world was supposed to look like. And at first glance, those are kind of scary images, right? Episcopalians have not tended to focus on those parts of the Bible, and they are legion. There's a lot of this in Scripture. And we, we, you know, we tend to kind of shove that away and dress it up pretty and kind of, you know, get a little antsy around the crazier stuff in some misguided belief that we're the nice, polite people and that all of that apocalyptic end-of-the-world stuff belongs to crazy guys holding street signs and death cults and, and people like that. But I am here to tell you this morning, the crazy parts of religion are actually the funnest parts of religion. And in these tense and anxious days in the life of this nation, I think that these, these prophecies, these ancient words about the end of the world land a little more heavily for me. They feel a little more prescient than they did five years ago. This weekend, James and I were in San Francisco for a couple days. We were at a celebration at Grace Cathedral, our sister to the south. And uh, because of the fires that are blazing right now in Northern California, the air in San Francisco was thick with smoke. The streets were deserted on Friday. Schools had been closed because of air quality, museums and shops and restaurants. Everything was shutting down, right? So the streets of San Francisco were mostly deserted with this thick apocalyptic fog hanging over everything. The people that we did see were all walking around with face masks on, some of them like full-on World War I-style gas masks, right? I mean, it was like... It was like the end of the world had happened and we were the ones left behind after the rapture. I mean, these are the days we're living in. Our world is burning. I mean, nation will rise against nation, wars and rumor of wars. Yep. <laughs> Earthquakes, fires, famines and disasters. Check, check, check and check. Maybe our ancient ancestors in the faith were onto something. Like maybe what we're seeing actually is the beginnings of the birth pangs. I mean, I think something is shifting. I think that shift is going to be seismic. I think it already is. I think it has to happen. So Jesus is walking around the temple complex in Jerusalem with his disciples. That Jerusalem temple that Jesus knew was, in its day, one of the largest construction projects there was. It sat on this, this huge raised earthen platform with these towers that rose 150 feet, 15 stories into the Jerusalem sky. The largest blocks of stone weighed well over 100 tons. And as it was initially conceived, this was an architectural masterpiece, right? This reimagining of the ancient Jerusalem temple by King Herod. It only lasted for about 90 years before it was pulled down and destroyed in the year 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus died. It was a monument that had been built to stand the test of time. But Jesus' predictions about one stone not remaining on another turned out to be eerily accurate. The platform was leveled. The only, the only thing that remains is the Western Wall, which stands in Jerusalem to this day. For generations after it fell, that Jerusalem temple was smoldering ruins. And the people did not stop. 
The worship of God changed drastically. That whole animal sacrifice cult thing that the writer of the Hebrews talks about, these priests who stood every day at their altars offering sacrifices, right? That whole system ends with the fall of the Jerusalem temple. That's not good news for people like me, right? The, these ancient priests, the modern-day priests whose economic security largely depends on these particular systems of worship. I mean, I have actually quite a lot invested in the structural integrity of this, these particular stones, right? They, they are my paycheck. But... When the Jerusalem temple fell in 70 AD, this really interesting thing happened. These, these movements, these little movements, what becomes contemporary rabbinical Judaism, what becomes Christianity, these movements of gathering together in smaller communities, gathering in homes, gathering in synagogues, gathering around sacred story and well-loved hymns, gathering to pray together, to eat together, to share meals, to share conversation, that gathering function of religion kind of won the day. In some ways, it kind of was set free, if you like. And our ancestors discovered that they did not need a building in order to worship God. The thing they needed was one another. God was doing something new in that time and in that place. The end of the world actually happened, right? That was how it felt to these Christians and these Jews who fled Jerusalem during the destruction of 70 AD. That town was leveled, right? Roman soldiers salted the streets and salted the fields so that nothing could grow back. Jerusalem was a smoldering pile of rubble. And most of our New Testament texts were written in that context. They were written in response to that reality. Our ancestors lived through the end of the world. Certainly, it was the end of their world. And they survived it. They wrote it down. They passed it down to their children. They preserved the stories and the hymns and the prayers. They created this form of meal fellowship that continues to this day in incredible stone edifices like this one and also in simple house churches, shacks, and fields, and tents around the world. We don't need a building in order to worship God. The thing we need is one another. And I mean, don't get me wrong, right? I, <laughs> I love this building. I loved this building the first time I set foot inside it. I was a high school student. I grew up in a very suburban evangelical church with a projection screen in the front and a drum set in the corner. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like, I loved, <laughs> I loved that place that is still home to me when I get the opportunity to sing a, a praise chorus with a drum beat, like my heart sings. I love that stuff. It was deeply familiar and it was home. But I remember walking into this space. I was singing with a choir. We were here for an interfaith service. And I was sitting right down there, right up front. And I remember walking in those doors and just being awestruck and, and, and a little bit terrified by the immensity of this building. There was a, the, the, it was night, the, the, I couldn't see the stained glass, but there was this glow up here at the altar. Marianne Borg got up. It was the first time I'd ever seen a woman functioning as a priest before. I knew that these people did church that was in a way that was totally different from the way that I grew up experiencing church. And I wanted to find out more about that thing. This building was my first encounter with the sacredness of God in the deep beauty of the Anglican, the Anglican tradition. This building got to me first. Sometimes I think architecture actually speaks louder than any hymn or any scripture reading, right? This building speaks. It matters. It matters deeply. But now I've come to love this building because of the people that I've gotten to know here, right? I was married at this altar. 
I've buried beloved friends in this sanctuary. On mornings like this one, it's like I can feel them still. I can see them practically out there in their usual spots in the pews. I can see them lining up at this altar rail to receive communion, these hands that I love so well, hands that I uh, see no longer, but remember nevertheless. They're, they're still here in some way. They're part of the stones. Some of them are right outside that wall in the memorial garden, and God willing, someday I will join them in that garden. There are days when I wake up and think, I get to be a part of this thing. I get to be dean of this place. I mean, look at this place. It is, I mean, it's a rush. It's a rush to climb up into this pulpit where women and men have stood for over a hundred years and provoked and inspired and teached, taught and admonished people with the guts and the chutzpah to speak a word to this community, to this city, to this nation, a world that was changing fast and furiously and is changing even faster and more furiously still. But if this building comes crashing to the ground tomorrow, I mean, knock on wood, it's, it's pretty stable. But if this, really is, if this really is something like the end of the world that we're living through, or at least the end of our world, the end of a world, if this way of being fades into the sands of time, if the Cascadia subduction zone does its thing, if any of the other disaster scenarios play themselves out as, during my tenure as Trinity's dean, I mean, I know what my marching orders are, right? They're basically the same marching orders that led us 25 years ago to saying yes to taking on this cathedral thing. The building matters. We will preserve it to the best of our ability because it's beautiful. And beauty is a pathway to God. It's part of how God comes to us. God, the creator, who, who spoke a creation into being. God, the builder, who is sometimes found in deep beauty and in sacred creativity. And at the same time, we don't need it. We get to enjoy this space as long as we've got it. We, it's a fun place to do church. But our identity as a people goes way deeper than these particular stones. There is something going on in this place, a deep DNA, and it goes way back before there were European Christians worshiping on this site. That thing will outlast us, I believe, and cathedral is a way of naming that project. It's a way of naming that thing, that, that human function of the spirit that responds to a holy God. That thing outlasts political dynasties. That thing outlasts technological shifts and the changing wind, the vagaries of fashion and culture, new ways of doing and being in the world. The idea of a cathedral, ultimately, is that it's about who we are as human beings. So in this place, our time horizon is not actually this year's annual giving campaign. It's not this year. It's not the next decade. It's like, you know, centuries. We think in centuries when we think about cathedrals, right? That's our time horizon. And we're building for the centuries. And we're not just building in stone. We're the inheritors of this several thousand year old tradition of gathering and meeting and singing and praying, worshiping God in the beauty of holiness with the best human tools that our creativity and ingenuity can come up with. Do not neglect to meet together. That's what the, the writer of the Hebrews said. Do not neglect to meet together as some do, whoever those some are. Do not neglect this thing. It's core. This is who we are, right? This is what Trinity Cathedral is about. We're here to meet together. Because when we do that, we encounter strangers who become our deepest friends. Our hearts are invited to open up 
just a little bit wider, and we catch these, these breathless glimpses of the immensity, the indescribable majesty and glory of a creating God, a God who builds out of stone and wood and glass, and even more significantly, a God who builds out of human hearts and minds. That's what Trinity Cathedral is for, not just stained glass and stone, human hearts and human minds, our encounter with God and one another in this place. And no fire or famine or earthquake or disaster can stop that thing. It never has. This stuff, what we're experiencing in these days, this is just the beginning of the birth pangs. Maybe it is the end of the world. Okay, we'll get through it. We'll get through it together. That's what we do.